We are out of Romans 14. We were in Romans 14 for quite a while, but now that we're out of Romans 14, we're going to get Paul's summary of Romans 14. He's uh, giving his conclusion to what it is that we were talking about in Romans 14 with the conscience issue, this uh, struggle between the, the strong Christian and the weak Christian, and how we are to get along with one another. And so let's go ahead and start by reading our passage. We're going to be in Romans 15, 1 through 7. So I'll start by reading that. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the, of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God." So the first thing that I want to note here up in verse 1 is that here Paul is now identifying himself uh, explicitly with the strong. He's been doing this throughout chapter 14. Uh, If we flip back into chapter 14, we can see in verse 14 uh, that he said, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he's they're siding with the strong, saying, uh, you can eat this food, you can participate in these holidays, you have freedom in Christ, you have that liberty in Christ. He does the same down in verse 20. He says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, and they are evil only for the man who eats and gives offense. And so we've seen this is his stance, this is his position all throughout. He sides with the strong, he identifies with the strong. But here in verse 15 is the first time that he actually, well first of all uses that word strong. Before he was just using the the negation. He was talking about the weak and uh, how others were to respond to the weak. Here he actually uses that word strong and he identifies himself explicitly with the strong. Um, Remember that Paul is a Jewish man and by and large, it's the Jewish people who are um, having these weak positions, these weak consciences, which think that they have to submit themselves under certain laws. And yet, uh, Paul is siding with the, the largely Gentile group of believers who uh, are identified as a strong. And he, here as before, he's placing the burden largely on the strong. He does address the weak and talks about the uh, responsibilities of the weak, but by and large he is addressing the strong all throughout this whole section and putting the onus on the strong that if we have faith, if we have a, a knowledge and understanding of these liberties, the responsibility is upon the strong to uh, lay those aside for the purpose of the weak. Uh, his main focus is in addressing the strong believers. And we see that in his admonition here in verse 1. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So he's 
offering this as something that should be done, that ought to be done, to bear these weaknesses. Um, to bear means to, to carry. It's not just simply to, to tolerate with the weaknesses of somebody else or to, to put up with the weaknesses of a brother, but it is to, uh, to support them, to help to carry them. This is the same phrase that we see in Luke 14, 27, when Jesus is talking about how we have to carry our cross, how we have to bear our cross upon ourselves. Or in Galatians chapter 6, when uh, Paul says that if a brother is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in gentleness and respect, watching out for yourself so that you don't fall. And then in verse 2 he says, uh, bear one another's burdens. And in doing this, in bearing the burdens of one another, you are fulfilling what? Do you remember? Law of Christ. You're fulfilling the law of Christ. We've spent a little bit of time talking about the law of Christ as we've been going throughout Romans. Um, how would you guys summarize the, the law of Christ? What is the law of Christ speaking of? Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. To love your neighbor. And that's really Paul's main point here and throughout this whole passage is uh, an appeal to love and unity within the church. That's what Paul is wanting. That's his primary desire that uh, the Roman believers and us as well, that we would have love and unity within the church amongst the believers, both the strong and the weak, that there wouldn't be any division between us, especially things that are uh, doubtful things, things that are opinions, right? Things that aren't clearly laid out and that God has given each one a, a different understanding and perspective on. He wants unity within the church. And I've been thinking a little bit this week. I've been going through Isaiah, so I've been thinking about how, you know, we're not going to have this unity, this total unity, this total sense of unity until we are glorified and with God in heaven, right? But in Isaiah, it's talking about some end time stuff, stuff that is future to us, and uh, it's interesting to see how there, there's going to be much greater unity than what we have now, how Israel and Moab and Assyria and Egypt, they're all going to come together and they're going to worship together in unity, a lot more unity than we have right now, and how the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the cow and the bear, they're going to graze together, and that is... That is unity, right? And one day that unity is going to be realized. But today we as the church, it is our job to picture that even now. That we would be a, a, a pre-shadowing, a foreshadowing of what that's going to look like. That the world that is all lost and broken and disunified, they would be able to look at a church and see unity even amongst strong believers and weak believers, even amongst people who have different convictions and different beliefs, that we would be a, a light to the world. And you and I, as believers, we have far less to overcome than uh, Moab and Egypt and Israel and Assyria, right? Or uh, a wolf and a lamb or a, a bear and a cow. We, uh, we don't have that big of an issue. No doubt we can overcome these things. I have a, a couple of verses here that just kind of point to God's desire for unity and uh, his love for that picture of unity. In Psalm 133, verse 1, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. 
That is God's heart, his desire, uh, just as it's Paul's desire here, for brothers to dwell together in unity. Or this one in Colossians 3, 14 and 15. says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body, and be thankful. Again, we're called to love in unity. That is that's what it means to be a Christian, right? And I know that we, we sin, we struggle with these two different natures. We have our, our sinful, natural, fallen nature, and we have our redeemed nature. We've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we have this Romans 7 kind of struggle going on, right? We're always going to have that struggle until we are glorified. But really, this shouldn't be a new concept for us. This is definitional to Christianity, right? They will know that we are Christians by our love. We are to be loving and unified and to do so selflessly. But when Paul was writing this to these first century Christians, it was a little bit more of a novel idea, right? Bringing together Jew and Gentile into this new faith under one head, under Christ, and they had a lot to work through, a lot of issues. Um, It was definitely a little bit different than what we're dealing with today. Again, not that it is easy for us, and I'm thankful that we have this passage to lead and guide us, but it's not novel for us. It's something that we should be very familiar with, very acquainted with. Um, Can you imagine what Orchard Hills Bible Church would look like if everybody who came here had this kind of mindset to be unified, that that was their, their top priority, not well, what programs does that church have, or, or when do they meet? Um, not what can I get out of that church, or what do they do for me? But that is a, a body of believers who are bought with the blood of Christ, and I need to unite myself to them no matter what it costs me, no matter my, my personal convenience. Uh, I know that we'd probably have a hard time fitting in this room, if that were the case, of those who have come, even since I've been here, Four years ago, uh, we'd probably be looking at planting another church somewhere else if we were more unified in love and less concerned with some of these doubtful things, some of these arguable things. Um, it's Paul's main desire. It's it should be our desire to be united in love, and it's really easy for for me anyway to look at other people and say, okay, well. Just get over yourself, right? <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. Again, we could uh, we could be somewhere completely different if we didn't make big issues out of small issues. But again, it's our responsibility to cultivate that unity. It's our responsibility to um, to bear the weaknesses of the other brothers, to to carry them, and um, to seek that as our our number one goal, as our number one desire to be unified in Christ. All right, uh, in verse 2, we see um, both a, a what and a why. So um, the what is each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. And the, oh, I guess the why is for his good and for his edification. So to, to please our neighbor. Now, John Stott in his commentary does a really good job to uh, to point out and to identify the difference between pleasing your neighbor and uh, pleasing man, being a man pleaser. 
So I have this quote from him. He says, neighbor pleasing, which scripture commends in Leviticus 19.18 and in Romans 13.9, must not be confused with man pleasing, which scripture condemns in Galatians 1.10 and Colossians 3.22 and 1 Thessalonians 2.4. So let's look at one of those. Will somebody read Galatians 1.10 for us? Let's see what that says about man-pleasing and how that's different from neighbor-pleasing. Okay. Or am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, then I would not be the bondservant of Christ. All right. So that kind of should sum up the difference for us. So man-pleasing is seeking the approval of men, while neighbor-pleasing is um, seeking to, to love on your neighbor. Neighbor here is um, talking about the, the, the weak brother. So brother and neighbor here are synonymous. Um, so it's to, to please man is to, despite God, try to Get the gain the approval of man to make sure that you are seen in good light in his eyes. But to please your neighbor is because of what God has done for us. We want to um, lift up our neighbor and to to see his good and the edification. That is the the why of this verse that he might be um, bettered and and lifted up and edified because of our response to our neighbor to our brother. And this is not for our own selfish gain. It's not the, the mentality of a, a rising tide lifts all ships kind of thing. Um, there is some truth to that in scripture. We see in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are all one body, right? And if one part of the body is hurting, then we're all hurting. Or if one part of the body is honored, then we're all honored. So there is some, some truth in that. Or in uh, Ephesians 5, when it's talking about marriage, it says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, that he who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ loves the church. But I don't think that should be our, our mentality here. He's not saying that because of the effect that your love and your edification is going to have on you, by you loving your brother, you should love your brother. Um, now we're to love our brothers not as not so as to in some way embedder ourselves or to make ourselves um, in a, a better position. That shouldn't be our motivation. It shouldn't be our priority. We need to ask, are we truly concerned and, and caring for our neighbor, for even our, our weaker brother who has differences in these opinions of conscience? Uh, let's just turn back a couple of pages and Will somebody read for us in Romans 13, 8 through 10? Paul was talking about the, the neighbor and the response to the neighbor back then. 13? Uh, yeah, 13, 8 through 10. Thanks, Rex. You only mark up your Bible so much and then you can't read the numbers anymore. Yeah, it has the opposite effect, doesn't it? Yes, it does have that effect. All right, 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and what other, other, other command, uh, commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. 
Amen. All right, again, the, the perfect law of liberty, right? If we are doing what we should be doing, if we are living like Christians, and we'll live in love and unity, despite any differences that we might have. <clears throat> any thoughts or questions on those first two verses? Paul's summary of Romans 14. All right. Quiet group this morning. That's okay. All right, well, let's move on. Let's look at uh, Christ's example in verse 3. Verse 3 says, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. And so, Paul here is using Jesus as an example, saying that, well, Jesus never put his, his own interests or his own pleasures first. He didn't seek to please himself. He came here in selfless humility, so let's look to him. And then he says, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Where is that from? Look in your Bibles and cheat. Yeah, go ahead and cheat. I want you to cheat. Uh, he is quoting from the Old Testament there. The, the, sec, the second footnote. The, yep. Psalm 69 9. Psalm 69 9. Yep. It's good to cheat. So, um, sometimes, yes. That's not a blanket statement, but <laughs> it is good to look in your Bible, look at the footnotes, look at the cross references, and uh, do your, your own personal Bible study. Let's trace back where Paul got this quote from and see how it applies. So instead of just reading Psalm 69.9, I'm going to go back and read a couple of verses prior to that for us. So starting in verse 7, uh, the psalmist, David, says, Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. That doesn't sound pleasant, right? He says, the zeal for your house, speaking to God, the zeal for your house, O God, has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And that's the last little clip that Paul took and inserted here. Well, when David was originally crying out to God, we have no textual indication from back in Psalm 69 that it's speaking about anybody other than David. Uh, David crying out to his God, saying, these reproaches have fallen upon me. I'm having all these, these issues. Even in my own house, I'm having some trouble. Um, we don't see Jesus mentioned in this passage at all. And yet, here, Paul is speaking of this passage as, and applying it to Christ. Um, but back in that passage in Psalm 69, what is it that David is seeking to communicate in those few verses? What is David saying when he's saying, for your sake I have borne approach, dishonor has covered my face, I've become estranged by my brothers, I'm an alien in my own mom's home for your house, um, I've, I've been zealous for your house, and this zeal has consumed me, reproach of those who approach you has fallen upon me. What's he trying to get across there? People are picking on him because of his love for God. Okay, good. Mission to God in his early years, and Saul's uh, persecution of mm -hmm. him was 
Yes. So people hated God, and that reproach fell upon David. We see uh, vicarious persecution, right? That David is being persecuted because of the hatred that people have for God, and it's falling down on David. Um, and obviously we can know, just looking at this, we can make that connection ourselves to Christ, right? No one has ever been stronger or more capable than Jesus Christ himself. And no one has ever been weaker or more in need than you and I, than sinful man. And so we can draw that, that principle straight away and see that it applies to Jesus more than it applies to anybody else. Uh, and Paul obviously made that same connection as well, saying, okay, well, Jesus, this could be said of him, that the reproaches that people have towards God, this hatred that people have towards God um, falls upon Christ, and it's un, undue, right? He's taking our penalties, he's taking our burdens, um, but I don't think that this was any sort of a, a prophecy. I think what Paul was doing, he was merely recognizing that principle, and he was applying it to Jesus, realizing that it applies to Jesus more than to anybody else. So, jumping back into Romans 15, um, he, Paul kind of goes on a little bit of a tangent after quoting the Old Testament and using it in this way, um, making that principal connection over to Christ. So, again, starting in verse 3, he says, For even Christ didn't please himself, but it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Again, originally David talking to God, he says, this applies pretty clearly to, to Christ as well. He was reproached for others. And then he says in verse 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So, he's speaking of the Old Testament, right? And he's saying, all this stuff that was written before, it's still for today. Now, remember, Paul was writing 400 years after the, the last book of the Old Testament was penned. And he's saying, all that stuff that was written clear back then, it's still applicable for our instruction. Now, that's not to say that we are under the law, that everything that is written in the law is to us. We have to apply the, the proper hermeneutic principles to realize who's being spoken to there and what's being said. But it is all written for us. It's for our instruction. Now he says, whatever was written in earlier times. So he's all-encompassing right here, right? Everything that was written in earlier times is written for our instructions. Again, some aspects of the, the Old Testament are going to be more pertinent than other aspects of the Old Testament. Um, we think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, well, these things are of first importance, right? These are the, the primary things. That are, they're really important. Or think about what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, when he's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's saying, Woe to you guys who you guys tie this this mint and dill and cumin, and yet you neglect the the weightier things of the law is what he says. Um, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You guys should have been doing both. You should have been tithing the mint and the dill and cumin while holding on to the weightier things, the justice, the mercy, and uh, the faithfulness. <clears throat> so not everything in the Old Testament is equal in weight, but he says very clearly here, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That's just as true for us today. We can't lose grasp of that because people are 
all the time wanting to unhitch the Old Testament, right? That's the, the recent phrase that some big name pastor came out and said, we have to unhitch the Old Testament. Uh, no, we don't. It's all written for our instruction. Uh, there's another movement of uh, red letter Christians. You guys heard of them? They'll just study the words of Jesus um, and say, well, the Old Testament, that's not for us. That's not applicable. We are red letter Christians. Um, that's wrong. We here are not red letter Christians. You should not be a red letter Christian because as Paul says, whatever the God says in the Old Testament in times past, that is for our encouragement, for our instruction. And that's very important. Don't lose that. Okay? All the Bible is applicable, however, it's not all written, not all directly addressed to us. The we see here the, the timeless veracity of scripture that it is true throughout all time. Yes, Summer. Question on that. Yeah. So what is applicable to us? So this is a wide question, so I don't know if you can answer it, but if it's applicable to us in the Old Testament, do you think it is repeated in the New Testament? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think there are things that are in the Old Testament that aren't repeated in the New Testament, like the Sabbath, right? Yeah, so do you um, think like tithing. It would be whatever is applicable, like the two should be used in tandem to see what is applicable to us now? Or? Yeah, and Jeremy did a, a whole series on hermeneutics. Um, we went through and we watched, uh, well, I wasn't even in there, so I didn't, but um, as a church, we watched. Uh, uh, what was it? Todd yeah, Todd Frill documentary thing. Not a documentary, just a, a little mini series on how to understand and interpret the Bible. And so you have to first of all uh, look at the context and figure out who is he talking to. Um, can I take this this principle and apply this principle in some way? Uh, what is the interpretation? Um, so there are many things we have to consider, but um, it's. Again, even though it's not written to us, we have to recognize that uh, as in large part the Old Testament isn't written to us, it's addressed to the nation of Israel and to specific people in specific times. It is applicable to us. We can look at it and we can learn from it. Um, and yes, using uh, the, the New Testament to uh, look at the Old Testament is helpful. Any other thoughts on any of that? Jerry. Well, we have so vital foundational promises of God that are only in the Old Testament. If you unhitch those, yes. you are really unhitched from all of history and God's purposes for creating the world in the first place. Yes. Yeah, so Closing your eyes and looking Good. Thank you. Yeah, God isn't obligated to repeat himself in the New Testament. Um, so if he said something in the Old Testament, it's not negated just if it isn't repeated in the New Testament. But the things that he said in the Old Testament, we have to understand who he said them to, what the context was that he said them in, and realize that the same God who wrote the Old Testament is the same God who wrote the New Testament. And we need to listen to him, even if it's not repeated in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, let's turn back and look at John chapter 15. And 
when you get there, could I get somebody to read verses 18 through 21? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 20 or 21? Uh, 21, please. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. All right. So there we see that same principle that Paul saw in David that he was referring to back in Romans 15, where he said, the approaches of those who reproach you fell upon me. Um, Jesus saw that, right? That people hated God, and so they reproached Jesus. And he said to his disciples, they're going to do the same to you. Look at what they did to me. They took me and they crucified me. A student isn't greater than his teacher. A servant isn't greater than his master. You guys can expect the same. So we see that principle um, in, in Christ there in John 15, that same principle that was pulled forward from uh, Psalm 69. But how does this principle apply here? Why is it that Paul is using it in this context when he's addressing these believers in Rome about their relationship with the strong and the weak and the conscience and love and unity? Why is Paul now speaking about this here? What is he getting at? He's pointing to, to Jesus as an example, right? And he's saying, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell upon me. That's true of Jesus. And um, said before that, even Christ did not please himself. So what is he trying to get at in speaking to the Christians here? Got to put your thinking caps on. It's Sunday school, right? <laughs> and feel free to throw out thoughts. If you don't know, you just, it's okay. Let's work through it. Let's talk through it. Clearly, Paul wouldn't just be speaking something that's completely out of place, right? It's got to be connected somehow. He's talking about not using ourselves in the context of the church, just as we do not please ourselves and risk persecution from people outside of the body. Also, supposed to not be in the body for our benefit. Okay, good, perfect. So just as David was he was bearing the reproach of the people who hated God, and that reproach, that hatred fell on David, and just as Jesus did that to an even greater extent, he bore the, the burdens that were not his own, the sin that was not his own. So the strong in the church, those who have freedom of conscience, those who have faith to do certain things, they ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak who don't have those freedoms. They, their conscience is bound. And the strong in the church, they should bear up the weaknesses of the weak, just as he says up in verse 1. We need to assume the, the posture of humility. We need to lower ourselves and, and lift up our brother. Right? We see this all throughout the, the New Testament, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that um, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers to make peace, especially within the church. We should have, again, this attitude of love and unity. And once again, using Christ as an example, I don't think we see this anywhere 
more clearly than we do in Philippians 2. Will somebody grab Philippians 2, 3 through 5, a passage that we've cited several times throughout the last couple of chapters because it is so applicable. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Okay, Logan. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right. So, consider others as more important than ourselves, right? To lift up our brother, to put ourselves down, have this attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. He is our, our picture. He is our example. We are to look to him. And if, if we are to be called Christians, little Christ, if we are to reflect him, then we ought to do the same. That's his... Again, his main point throughout all this to um, to lift up the unity of the body by considering ourselves lower. Yes, Summer. You'll be better than me because I don't memorize the verses. But everybody's going to the scripture where Jesus says, he's talking about the good then, but he says, as you have done it unto the least of these, your brethren, you have also done unto me. Yes. So this seems here that he's saying that includes the bad. Yeah, they said the, the same thing negatively, right? Like, um, I was in, in prison, you didn't come to see me. I was needing clothes, and you didn't clothe me. Whatever you did unto the least of these, you did unto me, right? Any other thoughts or questions? All right, we're going to end soon if we don't have more thoughts and uh, conversation, which is okay, that's fine. Did you say something, Logan? Something controversial? I don't think Paul's saying anything controversial. I thought the way that he used that quote from Psalm 69 was somewhat controversial. Um, But maybe not. (laughs) All right, well, let's keep going on then. Um, Picking up in verse 5. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, those same words that we saw back up in verse 4 that come from the scriptures, um, the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. Um, before we get there, let's, let's talk about perseverance. Um, because he's pointing to perseverance and encouragement, how it comes from the scripture and how we get to see perseverance from the scripture. Uh, perseverance just means to, to bear up under difficulty, um, not to persevere when things are peachy and things are going well. That's not perseverance, but perseverance is when things are rough and hard and you're still bearing up under that. Um, can you guys think of any Old Testament examples of people who bore up under perseverance? Joseph, good. All kinds of perseverance, right? And he was tenacious in serving the Lord. Job, yes. Also another great example of faithfulness, right? What else? We have plenty of examples in the Old Testament. Positive, negative. What do we see from the Old Testament? Again, all of this is for our instruction, right? How, do we, how are we instructed by Scripture in the area of perseverance? 
Yeah. Renee said all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, Abraham was given all those promises. He was told that none of this would happen for at least 400 years. Hmm. He still trusted God and believed God and was willing to sacrifices, kill his own son. Yeah. That was a serious challenge. Yes. And we see that mentioned several times in the New Testament, right? That we are credited as righteousness, as righteous because of our faith, just as Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteous. Um, I, yeah, like you said, if we didn't have the Old Testament, uh, there's so many different areas of encouragement that we wouldn't have. We wouldn't be able to look to Joseph and Job and Abraham and be encouraged by their faithfulness and say, okay, well, Joseph, man, that guy, he was in some sucky situations, right? Um, just flat out not fun. Uh, Job, he lost his family, all of his stuff, and he was still able to, to persevere, to see the sovereignty of God and to trust God even in those situations. That's encouraging. Um, so many different things that we have in the Old Testament, these examples of perseverance that are encouraging to us, that if we did unhitch the Old Testament, we wouldn't have at our disposal. God uses the, the whole of his word. All scripture is God breathed and it's useful, right? And it is encouraging and helps us ourselves to persevere. And again, we see those same words here. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you. Um, Notice how God is the one who's giving these things. He's the one who's giving perseverance. He's the one who's giving encouragement. Once again, go back to verse 4, through his scripture. That's the way that God operates. He has spoken to us through his word. And later um, in that verse, Paul says, may he grant you to be of the same mind of one another. Again, to be unified with one another. May God give you that as a gift. God is the one here who is giving God is the one who is providing these things. James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above. There's no shadow of change with Him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He is the one who is providing these things. He is the one who is giving you these things. We have nothing of our own. We are not self-made men, are we? Or, or women. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you didn't receive it, then why do you boast as if you had received it? Um, we have nothing of our own. We can see that here in the, the gifting, the verbiage that Paul uses, that God has given us this perseverance, this encouragement. And we have to look to him. We have to appeal to him even for the, the unity that we're being told to strive for here. May he grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. Let's flip back a little bit and let's look at Romans chapter 8 where Paul talks about being of the, the same mind. Will somebody grab Romans 8, 32? What's Paul say in Romans 8, 32? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Okay. What are we given there in that verse? We see, yeah. It says, he who did not spare his own son. 
What a gift, right? God didn't hold back his own son. He didn't hold back life and salvation from us. He gave us that. He goes on, he said, but he delivered him over for us. We are the the reason, not in full, I mean, ultimately for God's glory, but to some extent, he was delivered over for us. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God is a, a giver of all good things. Uh, let's look in chapter 11. The last verse in chapter 11, which is verse 36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Everything comes from God, right? Again, we're not able to produce these things ourselves. We're not able to produce this perseverance, this encouragement, um, this unity from within ourselves. He goes on in chapter 12, uh, these popular verses. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We see that same term back in 15, the renewing of your mind, so that for this purpose that you will prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Back over in Romans 15, um, talking about what God has given to us, there in verse 5 says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ. To have this, this same mind, this unity in mind, this understanding that we would think rightly as Christ thinks and live in one accord in total unity with Christ. That is his desire, his goal for the Christian believer to be unified by having the same mind together. Philippians 1.27 speaks the same concept. He says there, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's that's quite a calling, right? To conduct yourself in the manner worthy of this gospel, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is a, a huge theme of the, the Christian life, a huge theme of the Bible as a whole, to live unified um, without being at one another's throats. Um, that, that word. We've spoken before about uh, how often Scripture uses that term, Paul especially, one another. That is a fantastic study to go through and see all the one another's of Scripture. And Paul uses that term 11 times in Romans, one another. And nine of those 11 times he uses just in these few chapters, chapter 12 to 15. Um, let's go back together and let's look at those real quick. Um, who can read Romans 12, 10? Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. All right, good. What about 12, 16? Who's got that? Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Be wise in your own estimation. All right. In verse 18, he doesn't use one another, but he says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Same kind of understanding there. 
What about 13.8? Will somebody read that? Romans 13.8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All right. And then 14.13 says, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, to put an obstacle, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Or in verse 19, it says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And then the verse we're in, obviously, 15.5, and then going down to 15.7, Therefore accept one another. Or in 15.14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. That is a Christian life. It's something that we do with one another, not something we do in isolation. We need one another to, to be Christians. We need to do all these things, to love one another, to encourage and admonish, to lift up and love one another. That is so central, so vital to what it means to be in Christ. Now, I couldn't help myself but to go to Ephesians 4. So let's turn over to Ephesians 4. It's a great passage. Let's look and see what Paul has for us there in this same vein of living in unity with love towards one another. He says, starting in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Again, a high calling, a high task to walk worthy in that manner, to walk perpetually, continually, to live a life habitually worthy of that manner. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. It's not about us, right? It's about living for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are preserving this unity. We're not, again, stirring up this unity. We're not creating this unity. This unity is a gift that God has given to us. Um, and we are tasked with the responsibility to preserve this unity in the bond of, of the spirit, in the bond of peace. And then these great verses, there is one body, not two, not three. We're not divided. We're unified, right? In one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You, you can't disunify that, right? That is just filled with unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one. It's simple. And we come along in, in our sinful fleshly minds. We think, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to separate over these non-essential issues. That is uh, totally against God and his desire for his church. And then in verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is a, a beautiful verse. That grace was given us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Not out of the measure of Christ's gift, um, but according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's, um, there's a, a correspondence there that as much as 
God can give, as much as Christ can give, as gracious as he is, he can pour that grace out upon us and show us that grace and that forgiveness. Uh, think of the, the widow's gift in Luke 21, how she gave, how the others, they gave out of their surplus, right? But she gave according to her faith. Um, last week I met a man who had, or at least he said that he had connection with Jeff Bezos um, and that he worked for his, um, his helicopter pilot. Now imagine if that man were to get a, a tip from Jeff Bezos that was given to him out of his wealth. He gave him a thousand bucks, that'd be quite a tip. But if that man were to get a gift in accordance to Jeff Bezos' wealth, um, that would be significantly more, right? If he got a tenth of 1% of his wealth, um, that would be incredibly gracious. Um, and we are given, again, that verse, grace, according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's a beautiful verse. All right, back to Romans. We'll wrap things up. Romans 15. All right, so um, let's see. I'll start again in verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that, this is the purpose, with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate goal, right? Unity is great, but that's not the end goal. Out of our unity, we are glorifying God. By being unified in love, we are bringing honor and glory to God. That is the ultimate goal of any Christian, that whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we are to bring honor and glory to our Lord. And then he wraps up with verse 7. Therefore, because of this, to this end, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Um, again, we were accepted, we were redeemed, we were bought with the blood of Christ by his sacrifice for the glory of God. That was the purpose. And here we are told, accept one another. Get over your little issues that you might have with, with one another. If you are the, the stronger brother, bear up the, the burdens of your weaker brother, take on their weaknesses, get along. Um, that is what it means to be a Christian, to live a life of love and unity in the Lord with one another, right? Any thoughts or questions on any of these verses? Oh, go ahead. Go. I'm just going to say just a little note from, we talked about this last week, that accepting hmm. one another goes beyond tolerating one another. Christ doesn't just tolerate us. Amen. And so thank you for that, that we are totally and fully embraced by Jesus Christ, and that's the standard that we're to apply to one another, which goes well beyond what our flesh wants to do. Mm -hmm. Our flesh wants to merely put up with, yep. but the calling for love in the church is much deeper than that. We shouldn't be looking for the, the minimum requirement. What can we get away with, right? In that verse, where in verse 7 where it says accept one another just as Christ accepted us could say accept one another because Christ has accepted us but also there's that same 
kind of issue, or not issue, but the same principle that we saw in Ephesians 4, 7, that God has graced us according to his, his gift. Um, there's a, a correlation aspect here that in the same, to the same degree that Christ has accepted us to the glory of God, we ought to accept one another. And Logan, you were going to say something. Yeah, so what do you, what do we, uh, when we see churches being torn apart from the inside out, hmm. from each other as brothers in the church, slamming each other around for what they believe or don't believe or what they don't stand for, what they do. Yeah. What do we, where does this whole scripture passage um, fit in there? Um, I think... Again, going back to verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Uh, there's a direct tie from that to Second Second uh, Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I think it's okay to correct other people who are not doing this. Of course, you need to do it with graciousness and respect. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Um, bearing up their burdens. But that is the bride of Christ. And if she's being harmed and torn apart by people who are not heeding this, who are not obeying the words of Paul, going back and uh, obeying the words of Christ, I think it is, it's good for us to instruct them and to correct them as far as we're able to. Do you have something, Jerry? Well, Peter is a little more blunt. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Five, first, five. Uh, subject, say, the younger men be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, hmm. humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time. Amen. So all doesn't same mind that was in Christ Jesus, completely void of any pride. Amen. All right, Summer, and then we'll pray. Yeah. This might be a controversial question, but so you're talking about the what you may see as this beautiful things, but what happens when it becomes like more major things? The church is right apart, but like Logan said, there's a lot of like Mm-hmm. And sometimes those like, questionable. Well, the point is to see what Christianity was. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if we allow those questionable, debatable, arguable, doubtful things to uh, affect more major doctrines, that's where we have issues, right? And Paul in Galatians 1, all throughout Galatians really, he's very. Uh, stirred on saying, you guys need to call out any heresy. Yeah. Um, but what I'm disappointed in is how it's handled. Yeah. Like, I do think there's a right way. Like you said, do it in love and shrug. Mm-hmm. The way it's handled is really disappointing. Yeah, I agree. We can only control ourselves and do our best to 
walk worthy of the manner or walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. We want to do that, but it's not always done well. And again, to, to Logan's point, I think that results in the church of God being shamed, uh, the bride of Christ being shamed, and uh, Christ being shamed. And of course, we don't want that. And so we want to uh, do what we can to bring unity and love to prevent that, whatever cost we can. All right. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for these things. Uh, we thank you for the, the clarity of your word, but we realize that these are difficult things to apply to our lives. God, help us to be unified in um, these major doctrines. Help us to be uh, loving and accepting of one another in issues what, that we, we vary on, in these questionable things that we would love one another um, even because of our differences of beliefs, differences of opinion. And we pray that you and your name wouldn't be, be shamed because of us and the way that we live our lives. Help us to reflect you well. And we pray that we would be able to do these things for your honor and your glory. Amen.